Okay, so today, well, let's do a formal welcome. Welcome to Kabbalah and Coffee. It's great to see everybody. So today we're going to look at the klipa, the realm of spirit known as klipa. Now, klipa in Hebrew means shell. So in Kabbalah, the word klipa is used to indicate a force a spirit, an energy, a state of being that conceals over the truth. So the truth meaning or being God. Um, so anything that conceals over that truth is called klipa. So the example that's given in Kabbalah, classic example, uh, using the, the physical metaphor, is the idea of a, a nut, for example. Let's, um, what's our favorite nut? Let's talk about a walnut. Right? Everyone's got, you know, walnut could be, what other types of nuts do we have? Um, hazelnuts. Yes. Name your favorite nut. What's your favorite nut? Georgia pecan. Georgia pecan. Exact. Good. Good. A local, a local nut. Yeah. So, so we all, we all have, um, we all, we all have nuts, right? And, and you have, you have a shell on the outside that is hard and that protects the fruit on the inside from, I guess, damage or from intruders eating it. So in order to eat the nut, whatever, you know, whatever, whichever nut you're talking about, even a peanut, which is a, a softer shell, you have to open up the shell and then you can have the fruit. And Kabbalah says that this is a wonderful metaphor for the energy that pulses through the universe. There is divine energy that pulses through the universe. In fact, the core of every single thing, the core of life itself, is God, is divine energy. But we don't see it. Why? Because you have this shell, this layer of klipa that covers it. Some klipot shells are hard, some are soft, some are like peels. Like the, the difference between a nut and a fruit. So picture a banana or an orange. So we're talking about a very soft shell or peel, in fact, which you can just peel off. You don't have to crack with force. You just peel it off and it's ready to go. So the same thing is true in life. There are different forces um, of what we would call impurity or klipa that conceal the truth to different levels of, uh, of, of severity. Some conceal it very harshly very, very, some conceal the light very well, and some not, not as well. Some you can see the light almost, you just have to take, you discard the outer layer. But today, this is all kind of basic klipa information, but today I want to go much deeper. And what I'm sharing with, with what I want to share with you today is based on um, some primary teachings in the book of Tanya, the Bible of Chabad Hasidic philosophy. So it's explained in Tanya, and of course, this is based on you know, more ancient Kabbalistic texts, that there are actually two different dimensions of klipa. Generally speaking, there are two different dimensions of, of klipa. One is called klipat noga, which means the translucent shell, klipat noga. And the other is called shalosh klipot hatmeot, which means the three impure klipot. So there is this realm of translucent klipa, known as klipat noga, 
and then the impure klipot. So what does this mean? So the way I want to explain this is by dividing the world into three categories. There is the category of holy, the category of forbidden, and the category of neutral. So holy would refer to anything that is a mitzvah. Right? So anything that is a mitzvah is in the category of holy. You do that thing, you engage in that activity, it's holy. You don't have to do much other than engaging in that activity to be or to engage in something holy, in, 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 in holiness, because that itself is holy. So that is, so this refers to the realm of the mitzvah, right? A, mit, a mitzvah is something that's holy. It's per God's will. It's what God wants us to do. So it's holy by its own definition or by divine definition. And then you have another realm. You have the realm of the unholy. But more precisely in Hebrew, the word for forbidden is asur. Asur. In English, you might spell it A-S-U-R. Asur. What does asur mean? Forbidden. But Kabbalah explains it means much more than that. Asur actually means tied up. Tied or bound. So something that you tie down that you, that you um, bound up, that you bind, is something that becomes stuck, right? You tie something up and it becomes stuck. So the realm of the forbidden is more precisely, the asur, the prohibited, is actually more precisely not prohibited as much as it is tied down, which is why it's prohibited. So let me explain. Everything in this world has divine energy in it, as we've said many times. Some divine energy can be accessed by utilizing that thing. Some divine energy can never be accessed, even when you use that thing. Why? Because the divine energy is so tied down, asur, it's so locked down inside this thing, that by straightforward use of this item, you and I cannot open the shell. The shell is too impenetrable. There's no way to open the shell and extract the light, extract the fruit, extract the divinity inside and elevate it back up to a holy place. It can't be done. So there are, cer cer there are certain things in our reality, in our world, that are so locked down. They're so walled in. They're so shelled in. The shell is so hard. It's so asur, it's so bound up that the light cannot be extracted through straightforward use. Which means that if you decide to engage in that activity or eat that thing or do that, you know, take that action, the energy will never be elevated to a higher place. I want to give you the most practical example. This is an example that's brought in Kabbalah. The example that's brought in Kabbalah is as follows. There are certain foods that are prohibited by Torah law. Right? There's a whole, a whole category of stuff called kosher. I mean, we can use kosher also euphemistically, but there's literal kosher also, kosher food. Um, I'll give an example. One of, the, one of the laws of kosher, or 
regarding food, one of the laws of prohibition relates to a tree in its first three years of growth. The Torah says that a fruit tree, when planted in its, so in its first three years of, of life, the fruit of that tree is off limits. It's prohibited. Which means that you have a tree, it's two and a half years old, there's fruit that are on the tree. Jewish law says a person is not allowed to eat from that tree. It is asur, it is forbidden. The Kabbalists explain what that means. What that means is asur, the divine energy, the light inside that fruit is so tied down, asur means bound, it's so bound locked in to that item that by straightforward use, it will, it's impossible to extract the light. Which means that if a person eats of that fruit in the first three years and then gets energized because, you know, when you eat something, it gives you energy and uses that energy to do a mitzvah. So you're going to say, one second, I took the energy from this prohibited item, and I converted it into mitzvah energy because I use the energy to study Torah. I use the energy for, to do a mitzvah. Kabbalah explains that since, or not since, that, yeah, since it's bound, the light is not able to be elevated, to be extracted and elevated to holiness. The light forever remains trapped in the klipa, in the shell. So again, just thinking about the nut example. Right? All different types of nuts. I don't know if there is a nut out there that can't be cracked. I'm saying in the physical world. But imagine that there was. Imagine that there was a titanium, right? A titanium, whatever, impenetrable nut, shell, right? You couldn't get to the fruit. No matter how hard you tried, no matter how hard you, 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 you took a hammer, you took a chisel, whatever it is, you're not going to get it. So this is the example of the realm of the forbidden. No matter how hard you try, no matter how many times you bang your head against the proverbial wall, you're not going to get the light out of it. It can't be gotten. It's not accessible. Which is why, and that's on a spiritual level. So on a spiritual level, the light is so trapped in such a closed-off space that it's inaccessible because of that. Jewish law says that when you encounter that thing, don't go after it. Why? Because go after the things that have the light that you can pull out, not the things that you can never get because all you're doing is indulging in that thing and not extracting the light because the light cannot be extracted. Does that make sense? So again, this is the spiritual dynamic behind the halacha, behind Jewish law. So Jewish law says that that's forbidden. Why? On an energy level, it means not that, you know, the, the thing is toxic or whatever. It means that the shell is too difficult or it's using human tools, the, the, the tools that we have, there's no way to break it open. There's no way to extract the light. So all we're doing is engaging in shell and never getting the light, never getting the fruit. And that's, number one, a waste of time, a misdirection of energy, and not what we're supposed to be doing. So that, hence, the Torah says, when you encounter those things, what do you do? 
Keep on moving. Its rejection is its tikkun. I'm going to use the word tikkun. I, well, I just did. Right? Tikkun. What is tikkun? Tikkun, like tikkun olam, means fixing the world. So sometimes you fix something by, by repairing it, by engaging in it and finding what works and clearing out what doesn't and repairing it. That's like cracking the shell and taking out the light. That's fixing. But sometimes you can't fix it. So what do you do? You got to reject it. Its rejection is its fixing, is its tikkun. Why is that? Let me explain on a deeper level. God, because you could ask the question, well, why did God put light in such an impenetrable place? Did anybody wonder that? Why would God put light in such a shell that you could never get to? Because God wanted us to exercise a little self-restraint. And when we say no to that thing that we can't access, the saying no realizes its purpose for being. Does that make sense what I just said? Its purpose for being is not to be engaged with and accessed, but rather to be rejected and walked past. So, so you know, it's in, in Kabbalah, there's a doctrine known as divine providence. Well, I mean, it's a, do, it's a Jewish idea, but it's really um, spoken about at length in Kabbalah and Hasidic philosophy. Divine providence. The idea that everything that happens in this world is, 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 is guided by the divine hand. That everything that happens is orchestrated by a higher power. So a person might say, look, I needed money. I walked into the, the corner store. And I walked by the cashier. The cashier was helping a customer. The cash register was left open. Right? It had exactly the money that I needed. Divine providence, right? Divine providence. I, this is the money that I needed. I had no idea where it's going to come from. I walk into a store randomly. The cash register is open. When does that happen? It has exactly the, right, the amount of money that I needed. Divine providence. Everything has been orchestrated for me to take the money that I need. Now, maybe I'm giving too easy of an example. But does this resonate that a person, you know, in, in our own lives that sometimes we've, you know, said, oh, everything's working out. So what's the right framework? What's the right perspective in that case? Yes, it's divine providence. Yes, you needed the money. Yes, the cash register is open. Yes, that's ex the exact denomination. It's exactly what you need. But what's the divine providence? It's orchestrated for you to walk away from it. It's orchestrated. Yes, this was planned for you. You remember those... Um, Remember those beeps on TV and radio? I think they still do that. This is a test of the emergency broadcast system. In the case of an emergency, right? right? This is a test of your morals, of your values, of your ethics. This is a test of your spiritual connection. Will you take the money or will you leave the money? Yes, it was divinely orchestrated. Yes, it's divine providence. But it's not divine providence that you take it. It's divine providence that you reject it. Are you with me on that? Does that make sense? So yes, of course, it's divine providence. But the question is, what did, why did God set that up? Was it for you to take it or to leave it? So taking it, even if a person took it and then did a mitzvah with it, you, if it's stolen money, it, the, the, the energy could never be 
elevated and transformed into, into a holy activity. Are you with me on that? The, the, it forever remains forbidden. So no matter what you do with it, you're not going to elevate it. The only way to achieve its purpose is not by utilizing it. It's by rejecting it. It's by walking away from it. It's by saying no to it. That's how you fix it, so to speak. That's, how, that's the tikkun. That's the repair. The repair paradoxically happens through rejection. It's not really repair. It's rejection. But rejection is its purpose of being. Okay. So that is the realm of, of the three impure shells. I'm going to say that again. Kabbalah says that there, are, that there is the, the, the realm of the forbidden that is considered to be an impenetrable shell. It's like that nut that you cannot crack. So don't waste your time. Don't try to elevate it. You're just going to feed into it. It's never, even if you utilize it for something good, it's not going to be transformed to something good. It's a, it's a complete waste of time, a complete diversion of energy and diversion of attention. So rather reject it. This is again called shalosh klipot hatmeot, the three impure shells. So this realm of the forbidden in Kabbalah is divided into three sub-realms, all of which, generally speaking, are the realm of the prohibited. Um, I've, I, I don't have in my own head a very clear understanding of the distinction between the three impure shells. What makes them three as opposed to just one impure shell? Why are there three categories? It's explained. There are places in Kabbalah where it explains some nuances, some distinctions. I don't know that I have enough clarity to A, understand it or B, explain it, but that's the way it's described in Kabbalah. There are three impure shells, but in general, that, that's a realm or the realm of the prohibited. Okay, let me check in for a second. So far, so good. Does that make sense? Yes? Okay. That's why it's called Asur. The prohibited in, in Jewish law is called Asur, which means bound, tied up, because the light is tied up. Then there's another category. I'm, I'm not talking about a holy category. This is not a mitzvah. Mitzvah is a mitzvah. It's, it's, you're accessing light. It's, it's good to go. But there's another realm of klipa, because today's focus is all about klipa, all about the shell. There's another type of klipa that's called klipat noga. Klipat noga. And that's usually translated as a translucent shell. Or utilizing the um, words of Kosher, kosher words, we would call this paruv. Anybody know what the word paruv means? Yeah, you have dairy, you have meat, dairy, and then paruv. What's paruv? Paruv is neutral. So like when you're not mixed, when you're trying to not mix meat and milk, so it's like, okay, if, if I'm eating something meat, I can't have something dairy. If I'm eating something dairy, I can't have something meat. But what about like fish? Paruv, neutral. You can fish, you can... You, what about eggs? Neutral. What about, um, I don't even know what I'm drinking here. Whatever. What about, uh, what about other, you know, what about water? Power of neutral. So you have things that are at their core, kind of, they can go either way, right? It's not meat. It's not dairy. It's, it's neutral. 
So that's kind of how I, you know, how I would like to position Kalipat Noga. It's not holy. It's not unholy. It's neutral. It's kind of waiting for its attribution. It's waiting for you and I to define it. Now, on its own, it's neutral. Its definition will be determined by you and I, how we relate to it. So, for example, a kosher peanut butter and jelly sandwich on a Tuesday afternoon or Tuesday morning or whatever it is, right? A kosher peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Is it a mitzvah? No. God never said eat a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. It's not like a lulav. It's not like matzah. Eating matzah is a mitzvah. Eating a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, not a mitzvah. It's a mitzvah to take care of our health. So, okay, but it's not a mitzvah to eat a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. But is it prohibited? No, it's a kosher peanut butter and jelly sandwich. It's not, so it's not a mitzvah. It's not forbidden. It's not bound. So what is it? It's klipat noga. It's neutral, which means that its definition is going to be determined by the human being who interacts with it. So if a person takes a hold of that peanut butter and jelly sandwich and just digest, ingests it and eats it in a very, you know, um, physical way. So a person has taken their Holy Spirit, their human divine, their divine and human spirit and lowered it to, you know, the realm of the peanut butter and jelly sandwich. But if a person recognizes that they need energy and fuel for the body and they eat the sandwich, kosher sandwich, and they, they feel picked up from the energy of the sandwich. And because of that, they're able to study Torah and do a mitzvah and work in a, you know, in a, um, in a, in an honest and ethical fashion and give tzedakah and whatever, whatever the, right? So if a person is able to maintain their equilibrium in that experience and then utilize the energy for something positive, then it becomes a holy experience. Not that the peanut butter and jelly sandwich itself is holy, but a person has gone into that sandwich, right? Person has, you know, uh, jumped into that experience extracted the light and the energy, pulled it out, and lifted it up to a higher place. That is what we call transformation. So it could go either way. It could be a degrading experience for the human being, which we've discussed in previous sessions, or it can be an elevatory experience. But here's the kicker. That only is possible when we're talking about klipat noga, the things that are permissible the things that are neutral. If it's forbidden and a person says, I'm going to go into the realm of the forbidden and do some elevation, it ain't going to work. Donna. But if the person has made the positive choice to eat a kosher sandwich vis-a-vis a non-kosher sandwich, doesn't that change from neutral? And if it was non-kosher, would it not be neutral? Excellent. If you're eating kosher? Beautiful question. Beautiful. So you're asking, one second. You're telling me that not kosher is forbidden. So then kosher should be the other extreme, should be a mitzvah. Right? Isn't a mitzvah to kosher? You're asking a good question. So essentially, there's no mitzvah to kosher. The prohibition is to not eat not kosher, if that makes sense. 
So it never says, thou shalt eat a cow. It says, if you want to eat uh, an animal, it has to chew its cud and have split hooves. So it's more of, does that make sense what I'm saying? So the mitzvah really is more on the negative than the positive. So although there's a mitzvah on Passover to eat matzah, there's no mitzvah to have a barbecue. There's no mitzvah. Yes, when you're eating, you're not supposed to have some types of food, but what remains permitted doesn't become necessarily a divine, obliga- a divine commandment. You should eat this specific thing. So that's more within the personal realm. I want to give you an example of this in a story that comes from the books of the prophets. So, and I, I don't want to get into all the details of the story because it does raise a lot of other questions. But you guys are familiar with the, the nation of Amalek, the nation that attacked the Jewish people after the Exodus, like the, the thorn in the side of the Jewish people, the ancient Israelites. These were the people, this was the nation that like, the first people that start up the Jewish people after the Exodus, and then they did a sneak attack, which we just read about in um, yesterday's Torah portion. And the Torah says, what to do with Amalek? Just get rid of them. And I, I know that raises lots of questions, but listen, I'm not going to get into that right now because, you know, it's, uh, we would run out of time. And I don't know that I have a really good explanation, but the point is that the Torah says, get rid of Amalek. So King Saul, the first Jewish king, gets uh, commanded by God's prophet Samuel now is the time. We have a king. We have an army. Go ahead. This is like years later. Go ahead and get rid of Amalek. Okay. Including the animals. Right? Just get rid of the whole, everything connected with that nation. So he goes to war and he's victorious and that's it. Well, the next day, King Samuel heads out to the battlefield. And he says to King Saul, how'd it go? It went well. Did you do what God wanted? Yes. You got rid of everything? Yes. So Samuel says, then why do I hear the sound of the animals? He says, well, I kept some animals around to offer as sacrifices. Some of the Amalekite animals to offer as sacrifices. Upon which Samuel utters very powerful words. Does God want your sacrifices or to listen? Or your obedience, right? What does God want? So the way it's explained in the Kabbalah is that King Saul thought, oh, this is going to be the ultimate transformation. Taking the animals of Amalek and offering them as a carbon, as a sacrifice to Hashem is going to be the ultimate flip. It's going to be the ultimate transformation. It's taking the darkest of the dark energy and lifting it up to the holiest of places. What could go wrong? And to that he's told by the prophet, God does not want your creative calculations. God does not want your transformation. God wants you to listen. Why? Because there are certain things that you cannot transform. You cannot uplift. You cannot flip. Certain things you just can't flip. And you trying to flip these things will constitute every time your downfall. It will will mark a, a point in time in which You have descended into the abyss and put that energy, more energy into that klipa, never to return again. That's the problem. And you should see the dialogue. I mean, you can look it up. It's in the book of of Samuel where King Saul goes back and forth with him. I did it. The people made me do it. It doesn't really, never takes responsibility. By the way, that conversation ended. 
with, Sa- with um, Samuel walking away in just disgust with the king. And Samuel and, and Saul, the king, holds on to, tries to stop the prophet from walking away. He holds on to his garment. And as he's walking away, the garment rips. And Saul says to Samuel, sorry, the prophet says to the king, just like you've ripped this garment, the kingdom has been ripped away from you. And thus, King Saul, his children never ruled after him. The next king was King David from a completely different tribe, and that became the monarchy of the Jewish people, the Davidic dynasty for all time. King Saul lost the kingdom because of, because of this, because he tried to flip something that couldn't be flipped. Does this make sense when I use the word flip? I hope I'm not using a word that's uh, conjuring up something else. Not flipping houses, it's flipping energy, right? Extracting and elevating. Can't be done. Certain things that can be done, certain things that can't. So when can it be done? When you're dealing with something neutral. Klipat noga. You know what? Let me write that in the chat. I'm going to write that in the chat. Klipat noga. Boom. Klipat noga. That's the neutral shell. Okay? Neutral. I don't think I spelled that right. That's all right. Anyway, that's neutral. Klebat Noga is the neutral shell in which it can be elevated. The light is accessible and can be elevated. When you're dealing with the three impure klipot, can't be elevated. Um, with one caveat, there's one scenario in which it could. I'm treading in dangerous territory here. You ready? There is one scenario in which you could elevate the three impure shells. Do not try this at home. You guys ready? The scenario is where the scenario is where a person walks on the dark side and at a certain point later in life recognizes that it was a mistake. And the brokenness of heart, the broken heartedness of of those actions, when they spur a person to a greater intensity of divine longing and divine love, that's what flips. That's what could flip the negative to a positive, which is what our sages say in the Talmud, that when a person does tshuva me'ava, when a per- person returns out of fierce love and passion to God from a place of darkness, a passion that's only born of previous separation, so then even the transgressions become transformed into mitzvot, into, into, into a positive. The liability, the deficit, is transformed into an asset, into... A, uh, into a positive. Why? Because the reason why the person was spurred to such fierce, intense, divine love is precisely because of the separation that they had before. That's the only scenario in which the light is flipped, but not in a straightforward fashion. In other words, if a person is trying to eat that thing or take that money and do something good with it, that doesn't elevate it. It's only when a person is broken and then spurred with greater intensity because of that, that's the only thing that actually converts it and transforms it to a potential positive. But that's really in a, um, what we would call, um, 
what, what would I, how would I refer to this? Abidiyavid, not lechatchil. It's not something that we should go into intentionally, but something that, you know, when it happens, you know, a person can kind of back into that scenario and, uh, and find some elevation. Okay, now the third, the third level, right, we've talked about three categories. Category, we started from the bottom up. So the lowest is the impure shells. Can access, can elevate, can transform, can flip. So what do you do? Leave it alone. Don't touch it, right? MC Hammer, can't touch this. Then you have Klipat Noga. Klipat Noga is that neutral, translucent shell, which can be elevated. In which case we say, go for it. It's kosher. Again, kosher either literally or figuratively. It's kosher. It's accessible. Go, knock yourself out. But remember, utilize the energy for something positive. What if you don't? What if you eat the kosher peanut butter and jelly sandwich just because you're hungry and you don't have any higher thoughts of elevation? So what happens then? So it says in Kabbalah that the, that the energy remains stuck in the klipa, in the shell, because you didn't lift it up. It remains stuck until such point in time that you did something positive with the energy that you got from it. In other words, in the moment you didn't have the intention of I'm eating it for the energy to do something positive. You didn't have that intention. If you did, it would have been elevated, extracted and elevated right away. You didn't have that intention initially. But you can, again, back into it if an hour later, two hours later, you study some Torah, you do a mitzvah, you do something positive, and you're utilizing that energy, then ultimately you are elevating it and the energy becomes elevated to holiness. But it took a little bit of a, um, of a complicated journey because when you ate it, you didn't have it in mind. So you didn't have that intentionality. It was totally about the physical experience, which means that the light remained trapped. The holy light remained trapped in the physical encasement or encasing. And it's only later when you utilize it for something positive that it elevates even if it's unintentional. Even if you didn't have in mind when you're doing the mitzvah, ah, this is now going to elevate my peanut butter and jelly sandwich. You just did a mitzvah. You just studied some Torah. It elevates by default, all of the food, all of the energy that came into your body to, to bring you to this moment, it elevates it all up to holiness. But of course, only that which is permissible, not the forbidden. The forbidden always remains locked down. The third realm, which is really the highest realm, of course, is holiness. And that is, for example, doing a mitzvah, right? So when a person does a mitzvah, so you take a lulav and an esrog, and you give it the shake, the sukkah shake. Right? You shake it in the hut. You did a mitzvah. Do you have to have the intention? Or is it, are, you a, are you going in behind enemy lines and extracting the energy and lifting it up and transforming it? No. Right? There's no transformation here because it is simply a mitzvah. Give me one second. So what you're doing here is, well, what I'm doing is plugging in my computer because you need energy to power a laptop. So what, what we're doing when we do a mitzvah is accessing a realm in which there's no shell. It's pure divine energy. So when you eat matzah on Passover, 
You don't even need the, I mean, you should have the intention. The intention makes it that much of a more rich experience, but you don't actually need, fundamentally, you don't need that intentionality. Why? Because it's a mitzvah. And as a mitzvah, it's doing its thing, right? The mitzvah is pure. It's pure light. There's no, um, what am I looking for? There's no um, dissonance. There's no disconnect between what you're doing and the thing itself, right? The thing itself is, is holy. You're engaged in it. It's a pure experience. So eat your matzah on Passover. You're not going into something that has a shell and extracting the light. It's holy. It's a mitzvah. On Passover, it's a mitzvah. Here's one more example. And I think this, uh, you'll like this example. Eating good food on Shabbat. So here's the deal. On Shabbat, there's a mitzvah to have Oneg Shabbat. What is Oneg Shabbat? It means having enjoyment, uh, having pleasure on Shabbat. Well, one of the ways, according to Chazal, according to our sages, that you enjoy Shabbat is by having a good, a good meal, or three good meals, in fact. Right? Friday night, Shabbat morning or afternoon, and then Shabbat afternoon, and Shabbat late, late afternoon. So you have these meals on Shabbat, and the food that you eat at these meals are considered to be part of the observance of Shabbat, which means that it's not like lunch on a Tuesday, which could go either way, right? It could either be an indulgent experience. If it's all about the pleasure, then it's not holy. If you utilize the energy for something positive, then it is holy, but it could go either way. No. On Shabbat, even if you're enjoying the food for physical pleasure, it's just you like the way the chalan tastes. You like the way the kugel tastes. That is a mitzvah. Enjoying kugel on Shabbos is a mitzvah because it's part of enjoying Shabbat. So thus, it's a pure mitzvah eating. There's no shell that needs to be broken, no conversion or transformation that needs to happen. It's a pure mitzvah experience eating, obviously it has to be kosher, but eating kosher, eating food on Shabbat. Okay, let me check in and make sure that all three categories are explained. Yes? Made sense? Okay. All right, so again, to recap, we have the impure, stay away from, the neutral, engage, but carefully to flip, and the holy, jump right in. You're good to go. So what, do the, what, what role do the mitzvot play in these three categories? So here's what I want to tell you. The 613 mitzvot fall along two of these categories. Not all three, two. There are 200, of the 613, there are 248 positive commandments. Those tell us what are in the cat, what, what is included in the category of holiness. Remember, we spoke about one of the categories being the category of holiness. The 248 mitzvot, that's what defines that. The 365 prohibitions tell us what is in the category of the forbidden. And the neutral is everything else. I'll say that again. The 248 mitzvot, positive commandments, constitute the realm of holiness, Kedusha. That which jump right in, indulge, it's holy, it's light, there's no shell. So the 248 mitzvot, no shell, 
only pure holiness, pure divine energy, pure light. The 365 prohibitions of Torah tell us what are forbidden. The shell of the prohibited. Don't touch that. Don't go there. Right? Don't engage. You're not going to be able to lift it up. Stay far away. And everything else in the world that's not either a mitzvah or a prohibition is neutral. Like peanut butter and jelly sandwiches on a Tuesday afternoon. It's not a mitzvah. It's not a prohibition. So what is it? Neutral. That's where we write the script. So the first two categories are the positive commandments and the negative commandments. God has already written its destiny. So this is a mitzvah. This will have no shell. This is prohibited. This will, the light will not be accessible. The neutral stuff is our imprint on the world. So going to work and earning money. or specifically the job that we have, right? That is not a mitzvah. God never said, thou shalt be an accountant. Didn't happen, right? God didn't tell us to be an accountant. Nor did God say, thou shalt not be an accountant. Nor is it a prohibition. So it's not a mitzvah, okay? It's not something I have to do because it's holy. It's not something that I can't do because it's unholy, because the shell is too, is too, too tough, it's neutral. Okay? It's neutral. So what determines whether my job is holy or not? How I do it. Will I do it ethically? Honestly? Will I give something back from the proceeds, from my earnings? Right? That's how we can either elevate the experience or become sucked into, into it and get stuck in that translucent shell, because it still does have a shell. Since it's not a mitzvah, it has that klipat noga, it has that soft translucent shell, but if you don't pull the light out, you can get stuck in that shell. So we still have to be careful with that middle category. So, the role of the mitzvot is to jump in to that space. Sorry, the role of the 248 positive commandments is defining what is holy. Jump in. Matzah on Passover, holy. Lulav and Etrog on Sukkot, shaking it, holy. Um, enjoying Shabbat through three meals, holy. Lighting Shabbat candles, holy. Um, wrapping tefillin, holy. Putting up a mezuzah on your doorposts of your home, holy. Right? All of these saying Shema in the morning and in the evening, holy. These are all activities that have no shell. You don't need to break down any walls or cut through any barbed wire to access the light. It is holy. Done. The 248 mitzvot constitute activities that access the light in an obvious and immediate fashion. It brings the light into the world. It elevates the world to the light. It just bridges spirit and matter completely seamlessly we're utilizing, as I said last week, we're utilizing a lump of wax for Shabbat candles. It's transforming the, the physical matter of the world into a conduit of, of, of spirituality and godliness, and it does so in a seamless, smooth 
fashion. Dare I even say effervescent? I don't know if that applies, right? It's a smooth transfer. It's not even a transfer. It's a smooth experience of mitzvah. Conversely, the 365 prohibitions are all the Torah telling us, stay away. You do not want to invest your energy into what is essentially a spiritual black hole. This is a place that is going to suck in the light and you're never going to be able to pull it out. So by investing time and energy and you know, hopes and dreams and your mind and your heart and your hands and your feet into this thing that is prohibited, the shell is too thick. Anything that goes in is not coming out, right? So don't jump in. Because when you do jump in, what, what's happening is not only are you not going to take the light out with you when you jump out, part of you can't jump out. So it's just a one-way street. It's just one way to, to klipa, shalosh klipot It's one-way street into the realms of impurity. So stay away from that. Because we don't want to take pure energy. We don't want to take a, um, something that has a higher potential, including human being, a human potential, and invest it into something that's never going to yield anything positive. So don't, it's a bad bet. So don't, so stay far away from the 365 prohibitions. Hence the term 365 prohibitions. The Torah says, stay away. I'm just trying to think of a good example. It's like, I don't know, I can think of many examples, but like, don't put something toxic into your vehicle, right? Gasoline powers the vehicle. Something else, right? that doesn't power your vehicle, that could harm your vehicle, don't put in. What, what, what do they say if you put in your, your gas tank and it, it destroys it? Sugar or something? Sugar? Yes? Don't try this at home. But something, when you put into your gas tank, it like destroys the engine, destroys the car. Whatever. The point is, stay away from that. Why? Because it's never going to end well. It's never going to be a good thing. So the Torah says, here are 365 activities that are forbidden in that they are tied and bound to the realm of impurity, never going to be elevated, so stay away. That's it. Stay away from them. Invest your energy into the mitzvah, which is holy, or into the realm of the neutral. You have to be a ninja for that. I mean, you have to go in and get the light and bounce right back out with it, but, and mindfully. So invest in those areas. All right, let me pause and take any questions or comments before we go inside. Feel free to unmute and jump in. Could uh, um, the lowest clipo, could that be uh, <clears throat> more of a shell that is created around the object, around uh, the person, and maybe around the person's connection with God? Explain. Um, you said that the shalosh clipo, so the clipa around... Uh, the forbidden. If yes. You do something, could that create uh, a thickening of the shell or whatever around ourselves, the object, and then our connection with God? Or the shell? Yeah, so good, good, excellent question. So, first of all, I put it in the chat so everyone can see how that's written. Shalosh klipot hatmeot. So, essentially, that is the realm of the forbidden. And when a person engages in that, so again, not only is it a fool's errand because you're not going to get the light out from there, so it's a waste of time, 
but it also serves to suck your energy, my energy. It sucks our human energy and spiritual energy into that black hole and, and, harms, and, and holds us back from experiencing our full connection with where we need to be. So yeah, it's, it's not only a distraction, but it diverts the energy into a negative realm, which is exactly what we'll speak about today. The idea of diverting energy, spiritual energy, into an, un, un, into an unholy place. So in other words, the only thing that we can do when engaging in that realm is feed it more light, more energy into, a dark, into again, that black hole, as opposed to lifting it up for a holy place. Our job is to be light extractors, is to be repair, repair people, tikkun olamers. We're supposed to fix the world, which can mean many things in today's lexicon, but in the original, because it comes from Kabbalah, in the original Kabbalistic lexicon, what tikkun olam, repairing the world, means is to seek out all the sparks, all the points of light, and elevate them. Well, some are elevatable, some are not. By, fo- by focusing our attention on those that are not elevatable, number one, it's taking away time from what we're meant to be doing and energy, but it's also feeding more light into a spiritual black hole. And that's uh, it's a dangerous thing. It's not a, it's not a good thing. And it's not, it doesn't speak to our purpose. Can that create a shell around our relationship with God? I mean, I, I don't want to be a doomsday doomsayer or whatever it is, but like, yeah, I mean, it, 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 it ultimately dulls our sensitivity. You know, it, it, it just, it, it creates a different relationship. Instead of us being pointed to God, pointed upward, so to speak, right? We're now focusing on feeding the black hole. We're now focusing our attention elsewhere. And so necessarily, I mean, automatically, it's, gonna, it's creating some dissonance. Not from God's perspective, but from our perspective. It's like, you know, we've pivoted away from where we're meant to be, and that creates its own challenge. Again, nothing that can't be fixed, right, ultimately, by turning away from the negative and, and recommitting to where we need to be. So it can all be fixed, but it's at least in that, in that moment, in that experience, it is a bit of a shell, as you said, as well around the person between them and God. Um, okay, so let me share my screen, and let's jump into, let's jump into the text. Very powerful. So last week, just to show you where we're up to, last week we did, um, we're in discourse number seven. We spoke about the 248 positive commandments and how they are all, we spoke about specific ones like tefillin and whatever. We spoke about how they constitute specific forms of, 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 of accessing light and bring it into the world. Right, bringing supernal light into the world in various areas and lifting certain parts of the world closer to the light. It's all about that synthesis between God and world, between spirit and matter. It's that wonderful marriage of heaven and earth that happens when we do a mitzvah. And that's the intention of a mitzvah. Here we go. What about the, those are 248. What about the rest of the mitzvot, the prohibitions? Here we go. By the way, if you're wondering why there are more prohibitions than mitzvot, I'll, uh, I'll ask you to think about teaching someone else how to drive. Teaching someone how to drive. Anybody ever taught someone how to drive? Yeah? So what do you do? Do you tell them, go straight? 
right? Check your mirrors, sure. Turn on your signal, yeah. But you know what you're doing when they're in the car driving with them? Most of the time it's like, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. Like, don't hit the car, don't turn that, right? A lot, most of the time it's don'ts as opposed to do's. Because the do is very simple, drive. <laughs> drive straight, drive safely. It's easier to tell them what to do. But it's, it's more straightforward. But the, what not to do, there's a lot more of what not to do that could distract us. Anyway, back to our text. Here we go. There's more prohibitions than, than positive commandments. Similarly, the wisdom of the Torah decreed many particulars in keeping the 365 prohibitions. Which means, by the way, that within the 365 prohibitions, there are many particulars. It's not just 365. There are many sub-details and, you know, Many, many, many other details that are contained generally within the 365 prohibitions. Um, specific obstacles to the revelation of the blessed infinite light. In other words, each of these 365 prohibitions constitutes an obstacle to the revelation of the blessed infinite light. Instead of accessing the light, right, this thing serves as an obstacle to the light. So the mitzvah is accessing light. The mitzvah is how you access the light. And the prohibition is an obstacle to the light. These obstacles, take a look, these obstacles must be removed completely. Right? Remove the obstacles. Take away the impediments. How do you do that? Through the detailed laws of the prohibitions. It's by following the law and its details. Like he gives two examples. You shall not wear shatnes. That's referring to the prohibition about wearing wool and linen in a garment together. Wool and linen, we're not supposed to wear a garment woven of wool and linen. Why? Beats me. But the Torah says, don't wear wool and linen. And that means that on an energy level, right? I mean, look, I'll ask it this way. When was the last time you saw the infinite light? Okay, because we, we don't, our eyes are not trained to infinite light. So our eyes are also not trained to the fact that wool and linen are an obstruction to the infinite light. But that's what Torah tells us. That's what Kabbalah tells us. Torah tells us what to do, what not to do. Kabbalah explains what's the significance. The significance is that when a person is trying to access light, bring it into the world, into themselves, following the mitzvot is the way to do that. Wearing wool and linen is blocking that. Or another example, you shall not eat internal fat. This is referring to certain fats of kosher animals, by the way. Kosher animals, there are certain parts of the animal, of the, of the meat or whatever, the fats, that are prohibited. Which is why certain cuts of beef, even from a kosher animal slaughtered correctly, are not kosher. Certain types of roasts, are not kosher. Certain types of cuts of meat are not kosher. Why? Because the Torah said so. And those things are considered to be an obstacle to the revelation of the blessed infinite light, which is why we're meant to stay away from them. So, and, and other examples of the negative laws. Negative laws meaning the do not do's. It's not that this you shall do, but this you shall not do. That's why it's called the negative law. It's a prohibition. Through energetic subordination, I like that one, not passive subordination, but through energetic subordination in refraining from a prohibited deed and through the necessary caution in observance, 
man or human being, the human removes the klipot and the sitra achra that prevent and conceal the revelations of the blessed infinite light. So it's almost like the light is waiting to come pouring in. The light is waiting to be accessed, waiting to be opened up. But you have these touch points that block it, that shield it. And the message is, don't take those deflectors into your life. Don't wear shatnas because it's going to bounce back the infinite light. Don't eat the internal fat, the prohibited fats of the animal, because again, it deflects the infinite light. So engage in the activities that bring in the light and don't push it away. Sandrine is asking a good question in the chat. When it comes to wool and linen, is it that it can't be worn in the same garment? Or is it that a person cannot be even wearing one garment of wool and one garment of linen? In other words, can I wear a linen shirt and woolen pants? Right? Let's say I have a pair of wool trousers and a linen shirt, right? Is that okay? The answer is that is 100% kosher. You can do it. The only prohibition of woolen linen is when it's woven in the same garment. I've mentioned Uggs before, right? Did I mention Uggs? This broke right before the pandemic. I'm not saying it's yeah. related. Yes, I mentioned Uggs. So it's interesting. There was a bit of a, an Uggs scandal that, that, that broke on the internet right before the pandemic or in the months leading up to the pandemic. Again, not related, just like it went quiet because I think everyone was just, you know, pandemic but like there was a thing where somebody was looking into Uggs and the bottom um, I don't know what you would call it the bottom insole or whatever of the Uggs is wool it's like real wool but the backing of it is linen on some on some uh, on some shoes so you have to and I don't think it comes up naturally I think if you, but if you like separate it out and they tested it and whatever and some are some are linen threads linen is a very is a is a is a um, tough material so I guess it's to, for durability. But it would be a problem to wear even footwear that's woven of, of wool and linen together. I'm not saying all Uggs or, you know, I'm not canceling Uggs. Don't worry, I'm not, uh, I'm not a canceler. I'm just saying you got to be careful and even in, in unexpected places. But getting back to the point over here, the, every mitzvah, as I said before, a, there are three realms. There's the holy, the unholy. It's not even, I don't want to get stuck in terminology. There's light. There's black hole, and then there's neutral. So the message here is simple. Access the light. Don't, don't block the stuff. Don't, don't access the black hole stuff that deflects the infinite light or that sucks in the infinite light. That's not what we're meant to be doing. So we're meant to be light makers, not light deflectors. That's the, uh, that's the core idea here. So the 365 prohibitions serve to push away or keep away the light. And that's not what we're meant to be doing. Okay, let's go back inside. Um, let's go back inside and check out the next chapter. Check this out. This is really touching on what we've talked about thus far in today's class. Another function of the prohibitions, in addition to what we just said in chapter 2, 
which is that these are obstacles to the revelation of the light. Right? These are like deflectors of the light. Another function of the prohibitions is that they prevent the divine light from being drawn to a despised end called an abomination to God. For evil shall not dwell with you. In other words, when a person engages, God forbid, in the prohibitions, a person is feeding, as I said before, feeding light into that place. Not only are they deflectors, but they are also absorbers of the infinite light. And that's a problem. To take God's infinite light and draw it down into a despised end called an abomination to God is certainly not what we're meant to do. That's exactly what happens when we engage in the forbidden activity. So one of the reasons why we have the prohibitions is to make sure that the light, it does not end up in an undesired place. Man fulfills this through separating himself from anything forbidden, anything bound up, look at that word, right? Bound up, as I said before, with the external that are incapable of being elevated. This is exactly what I explained to you thus far, you know, this morning, right? And the forbidden realm is anything bound up with the external, like the klipa, that, that are incapable of being elevated, for they cannot harbor the divine light. As the verse reads, for I shall give my glory to no other, Man who avoids evil becomes a vehicle for holiness. So I want to leave that, that line for a second, but the core idea here is that yes, in everything there is divine light, and everything, you know, everything is ultimately powered by God, even the most forbidden item, but that light can't be accessed. That light, um, Dr. Maxi. Thank you. No, I just sure. had a question about what you're talking about now. So yeah. where it says... Um, anything bound up with the external that are incapable of being elevated for they cannot harbor the divine light as the verse reads and goes on. So what about when you're talking about another person? So God forbid I have a grandchild who's doing something not quite what they need to be doing. So am I to separate myself out from them? I mean, it seems like I intuitively... I would want to attempt to help them. Excellent question. Excellent question. So what we're talking here, and this is a very, very good question, and it's very important to, to, to create a distinction. Um, when we're talking about the forbidden realm, we're not talking about people. We're talking about activity. So a person could engage in something in the forbidden realm, but that doesn't make them utterly forbidden. Does that make sense? In other words... That doesn't, if they're engaged in something that God canceled, that doesn't mean that they're canceled, right? That doesn't, that's not, that doesn't mean that. So, yes, and, and by the way, that also doesn't mean that the totality of their energy is invested in that, in that forbidden activity. Because I'm sure, and I'm not even speaking about, obviously, anyone specific, but the totality of their energy, they, there's more energy that's directed to neutral or maybe even holy places. We're all guilty of... I mean, right, unless, the, yeah, unless we're dealing with a tzaddik, we're all guilty of, on occasion, of the energy going into places that are, that are not where they should go, right? Does that make us totally, you know, of that realm? No, it just makes the energy that went there part of that realm. And again, not to, um, you know, there's a balance, obviously, between um, recognizing how important this is, but also recognizing the, um, you know, with, within measure as well. So, like, it, it doesn't become utterly and completely 
the person doesn't become utter and completely, you know, on the dark side. It's, it's the, the energy that went there is misdirected energy. But overwhelmingly, the way to influence a person is through love and connection and attachment and not through kind of that distance. So when it comes to the prohibited distance and rejection is the answer. When it comes to someone who on occasion or whatever it is, is engaged in something that's, uh, that's unhealthy, it's still not the, the, we're not supposed to reject the person, but reject the, the, um, that, 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 that area of behavior. So for another person engaged in that area of behavior, it, it's not for us to reject. Now, I'll tell you what the author ever writes in Tanya in chapter 32. He says, even when King David says about, about w- the wicked, that I hate them with the ultimate of hatred, he says, that means hate the behavior or hate the activity that's being done, but not hate the person, right? It's, it's we can influence, really influence only happens through closeness. I mean, you can impose or force through a distance, but you can't, you can't influence through distance, through, through harshness, right? So you only influence through closeness. Which is why we're always told to maintain a close relationship. Even when it seems like, oh no, reject, it's not real, real rejection. And maybe some of you are thinking, well, hold on. What about back in the day, in, you know, in the shtetl times, when they would say Kaddish for a kid who you know, became modern and you know, went, went out of the community, they said the, the mourner's Kaddish, like when someone passed away, they completely disowned and considered them gone, right? No longer alive. I'm going to say that that was never right. Now, I'm not criticizing. Listen, I'm just going to say that that was never. It wasn't. That wasn't, that wasn't the way. I, who am I to judge the way they did things back in the day? Okay, fine. But I, I don't believe that that was ever the Jewish way. To reject a person for a behavior? Right? That's not, that's not, a, that's not a way to do it. In fact, the, the foundation of our people is the idea of tshuva. The idea of, of, of the, the ability to come back, right? After the sin of the golden calf, God said, Jewish people are done. And Moses says, if they're done, I'm done. If they're out, take me out of your Torah. The only way I'm in is if you create a space to come back. And God says, done. You're right. Not, maybe not you're right. Maybe thank you for creating that path that I wanted you to create. Either way, there's a path that's open. Always a path that's open. To make it hard for someone to, to come through that path, right? Why, why would we make it more, more difficult for someone to come back to that path? In other words, what, it's almost like reverse psychology. You want the person to come back to a good place. So what are you going to do? Lock them out of your house and make, them, and make them break in to come back? Or are you going to keep the door wide open? What's going to encourage someone to come back? Closing a door or opening a door? Right? It's, just, it's just simple physics. Right? It's, it's a simple dynamic and also human dynamic. Keep a door open, you're more likely to get the person to come back in. You shut the door, you're more likely for them to say, well, the door's shut. I guess I can't come back even if I wanted to. So I don't know that the Kaddish ever worked. I don't know what it was for. I mean, I, I, maybe it expressed the pain of, of, of watching someone's child you know, go in a different direction, but I don't know that that ever brought someone back which is a tragedy in and of itself to, to shut the door on someone. 
Anyway, I, I, I may be going uh, a little bit off tangent here. I don't know if I am or not. But, but your question was, you know, someone engaged in, let's say, prohibited behavior. So does that mean that they become of that realm? And the answer is no. The energy that they're using, that they're directing to that realm, yes, that energy becomes part of that realm. But they're, they, as a person with a godly soul, are bigger than, than any one activity. Is it possible, theoretically, for someone to become so consumed in evil that they become completely, you know, grabbed by that realm? Is it possible? Perhaps. And I know who you're thinking about, right? Everyone's thinking about, you know, well, what about that guy? All right. I don't know. I don't know. There's no way for me to know. There's no way for me to tell you what I don't know. But what I do know is that in normative situations of a person, you know, People sometimes getting caught up in negative stuff, and we're all in that, we're all guilty of that to some extent, more or less, right? We should never throw stones because we're all living in glass houses. Um, you know, that's, that's the way it is. The way, the way it is is that, yeah, whatever went to the negative is, is stuck in the negative, or, you know, that energy went there, but the totality remains beyond that. Anyway, we're touching on a lot of really important topics, Right, including um, you know how to deal with uh, you know disappointment and how to deal with with uh, tough love, love, love. These are very, very important topics. Very important topics. I will say that I think I'm listen. I'm not a scientist. I'm not a researcher. I'm not a brain scientist. I'm not a psychologist or psychiatrist. But I, I, you know, I know there's time for tough love and intervention, but I also know that I think certainly children, I think all human beings, respond more to love ultimately than to harshness. Not to say sometimes when there's a shell that you don't have to crack it. Yes, I said when there's a nut, right? You got to crack the shell to get to it. So some, yes, there's some, but how to use what tool when? That requires a lot of wisdom and a lot of care. Handle with care, right? That is, that is the warning sign on all sharp implements, or that should be, in dealing with others and dealing with ourselves. Even in Tanya, when dealing with ourselves, the author Rebbe says, utilize tough love for self, or tough measures for self, very, very carefully. Like feelings of guilt, feelings of shame, use it very carefully. It could be an impetus for growth, but it could also be devastating and depressing. Utilize it with kid gloves at a certain time, in a certain context, in a certain way, but not just, you know, willy-nilly. Okay, hope that makes sense. Let's jump back in to our text. Um, okay, so Klippa and the prohibited, number one, there's two things. Number one, they deflect the divine light, the infinite light. And number two, they suck in the divine light. And we don't want that to happen. So how do we avoid that? By avoiding klipa, by avoiding that which is prohibited, by avoiding the realm of the evil. Right? So number one, the evil pushes back. And number two, it takes in. We don't want either of those. We don't want it in the way. And we certainly don't want it siphoning off the holy light into that unholy space. So man who avoids evil becomes a vehicle for holiness. By avoiding evil, one becomes a vehicle for holiness in both ways. Because number one, you don't have the block. And number two, you don't have the negative absorption. <laughs> it is understood then 
back inside. It is understood then that the primary purpose of Torah wisdom, look at this, primary purpose of Torah wisdom is to teach you and I how to, number one, elicit the revelation of the infinite light here below through the 248 positive commandments. Right? So what does Torah do? It tells us. It's a how-to guide. This is how to, number one, bring, divine, bring infinite light into the world. And that also means bring the world into the infinite light. To merge infinite light with world. Like a lump of wax becomes a vehicle for, for holiness. Right? So that's what Torah teaches us. How to, how to, how to um, fuse infinite and finite. And... The second purpose of Torah tells us, Torah tells us how to, the second how to, remove obstructions to their revelation through observing the 365 prohibitions. And observing means, of course, staying away from the 365 prohibitions. So, the positive commandments, wrapping tefillin, putting up a mezuzah, um, uh, building a sukkah, eating matzah, giving tzedakah, etc. All of those bring light into the world. And avoiding the 365 prohibitions is avoiding blocking the light or even worse, sucking the light into an unholy place. This is the meaning. Here we go. This is the meaning of the inwardness of the divine will in general. In other words, This is what God really wants. When he says, I know it's broken up in two pages here, it's a little bit awkward to read, but the the in, you know, in dash, inwardness of the divine will, that means what God really wants. There's, and we've explained this before, there's what you want sometimes because you want something else. Like I want to go to work because I want money, because I want the things that I need, because I want to be happy. So what do you really want? You want to be happy. You don't really want to go to work. You just want to be happy. Unless you do really want to go to work, and then that's your deepest will. But there's always layers of will. What you want, and what you want to get what you want, and what you want to get what you want to get what you want, etc. What does God really, really, really want? What's the inwardness of the divine will? What's the ultimate core of God's will? What does God really want, in general? That there be a revelation of the infinite light in the physical world. That's what God wants. God wants a home on earth. God wants a perfect fusion of heaven and earth, of spirit and matter, of infinite and finite, of soul and body. God wants that fusion, the perfect, seamless fusion. That's what God really wants. That's at the core of everything. Why did God create the world, create us? What's the end game? God wants a home on earth, a fusion of God and world. And how do we do that? How do we play a role in that? We do that through observing the 248 commandments that brings the light in and removing obstacles through the 365 prohibitions. So there's the positive and the negative. Think about a relationship. Right? They're doing things... There's something that you can do for the other to cultivate the love, to express the love, to share the love, to call forth the love in the other. There are things that we can do to nurture the love. And there are things in a human relationship that we should stay away from 
because they're toxic to the love. They're antithetical to the love. Are you with me on this? Right? So there are activities that you and I do that nurture and foster love. And then there are things that we could do that would block the love. That would hold the love, keep the love at bay. Or worse, suck the energy into an undesirable place. Right? Misdirect the energy. Misdirect the love or the attention into a dark place. Into the black hole in the relationship. Whatever that is. Right? There are many different examples that we certainly could give. But without any specifics, there are things that we do that benefit the relationship and things that we could do that would harm the relationship. And the goal is do more of the things that help and less of the things that harm. The same thing is true in life. On a spiritual level. God gives us 613 commandments. 248 of them are things that we do to nurture the relationship between us and God, heaven and earth, spirit and matter, infinite and finite, building a home for God on earth, building a space on earth for God. And 365 of those 613 are things that we should avoid because they would block the connection. Or worse, suck the energy into a distorted place. Uh, Let's go back inside and conclude this chapter. This, all of the above, brings the fulfillment of the intention and wish. In other words, why God did all of this. And what was that? That God desired to have an abode among the lowly. God wanted a home in the lowest of realms. Right here. Right? This, when we do this 240 commandments and we avoid the 365 prohibitions, that fulfills God's wish to have a home on earth. Yeah, it sounds impossible. How could you have a godly home on earth? 240 uh, commandments, 365 prohibitions, that's how it happens. In particular, that's in general, right? This was all in general. In particular, every mitzvah has an individual radiance of this general will. So it's not like the 248 commandments are all the same. It's like infinite light, infinite light, infinite light, infinite light, 248 times. Because if that was the case, then you only needed one mitzvah. The 240 commandments are about bringing different flavors of infinite light or the infinite light into different flavors of the universe, right? Each in their own way. So it's different ways of doing it, different, you know, specific ways of bringing the light in, of creating the home. It's like, let me give a home example. You're building your dream home from scratch. You got a piece of land and now you're building the home, right? So there's one overall vision, your dream home, but your dream home has... It's a composite of so many details, right? How many rooms? How many bathrooms? What does the kitchen look like? What does the yard look like? What does the living room look like? What is the furniture? What is the decor? What is the energy? What are the colors, right? All of that stuff are the details that constitute the overall home. So yes, in general, it's your dream home. In particular, there are all these details. So yes, in general, God wants a home on earth. But how do you build God's home on earth? 248 steps, 248 commandments. Each one, this is the living room, this is the dining room, this is the kitchen, this is the plumbing, this is the electric, this is the this, this is the that. Every mitzvah does its thing. Tefillin, kosher, mezuzah, Shabbos, shofar, matzah, sukkah, lulav, esrog. Um, every mitzvah does its thing. 
in its own way. That's the nature of it. Okay. Let's get back inside. And regarding this, it is said, May God's face shine upon you. Specifically to Israel who fulfill the mitzvot that are the inwardness of the divine will, affecting a revelation of the infinite light below. Of course, we're speaking about the 613 commandments that were commanded to the Jewish people. But, as you know, there are also, in general, seven laws for all mankind. So he says, this is for Israel fulfilling mitzvot, but really it's also for anyone who fulfills their obligation. That is what brings light into the world. It's by doing the commandments, by observing the commandments, doing what's right, doing what's, what God intended, God, what God wants for the world that brings the light into the world. And it's staying away from the things that block the light that make sure that those obstructions remain at bay. So in conclusion, what we did today was, just for clarity, we did chapter 3. Sorry, we did a little bit of chapter 2, the last paragraph of chapter 2, and chapter 3 of discourse number 7. And what we learned today was about, generally speaking, about three realms. There's the realm of the prohibited. There's the realm of the permitted. And the realm of the holy. And each one has their own reality. The prohibited, we got to stay away from. Why? They're energy suckers. They just suck the light, suck the energy, black holes. They never give the light back. They only take the light. It's not healthy. So that's the realm of the unholy. The three, I wrote it in the chat before, shalosh klipot hatmeot. Three impure klipot. You got to stay away from those shells because you ain't going to get the light. They, they deflect the light. They block the light. They suck the light. They don't do anything positive. Those are the things in a relationship that derail the relationship, that cause problems in a relationship, that pull attention away from where it needs to be in the relationship, that misdirect the energy in a relationship. Stay away from that. Then there are the neutral things. Neutral things can go either way. We didn't focus on that a lot today, but there are neutral things that can go either way. That's We determine how they go by how we relate to them. And then you have the highest, which is the mitzvah, the mitzvah realm, the holy realm. Those are the things that when we do them, the light comes flooding in. And so we have the 613 mitzvot. 248 of them tell us how to bring the light in. 365 tell us how to keep the darkness out or how to stay away from misdirecting the light. It's together, the 248 plus the 365, the 613 mitzvot, that are at the core of us making a home for God on earth. So this is a powerful message about what klipa is and how we deal with klipa. But overarchingly, there's a message here. And that is we each have time. We each have energy. We have time on our hands. We have energy in our bodies. We have a lot of potential in our souls. And the question is, what are we doing with all of that time, energy, and potential? What are we doing with the gifts that we have? Are we building a home for God, or we bring light into the world, or are we becoming distracted by the other stuff? This is, once again, a meditation in our quest to overcome folly, 
overcoming folly, in our quest to overcome folly, in our quest to stay away from negative choices and to make better choices, understanding the spiritual dynamics of what's at stake, understanding this is very important because it helps us remember what we're here for, what we can accomplish, and the challenges that we can get ourselves into. And hopefully with that awareness, that'll keep us more on the path that we need to be on. Thank you for joining me today for Kabbalah and Coffee. It's great to study with you all, or with y'all, as they would say, as we would say here locally. Um, any questions or comments as we close out? Okay, before we go, I want to do this. I said I would do this before, and I realized that I, that I didn't. Here we go. That is for today's memorial event. You can copy and paste that, or if you got the email, um, it has the direct link um, for that. But that is the meeting passcode, the link for today's memorial event for my grandfather. 5.30 to 6.30. I should probably post that as well. I think I cut off that first part, but that's, that's what this is. Rabbi Pfeffer, my grandfather, memorial event today at 5.30 p.m., 5.30 to 6.30. Oh, also another announcement, don't forget, tonight at 7, we have a program called Escape from Cairo with a, um, a fellow who grew up um, in Egypt, grew up in an environment where Jews were not friends, were not considered to be friends, where Israel was considered to be the enemy. He's going to talk about his experiences in just being steeped and indoctrinated with anti-Semitic um, ideas and anti-Israel hate, and how he personally completely changed his life around. Now he's a human rights activist, and he stands with Jews in Israel. Um, and he's going to take us inside, inside the mind and inside the heart and soul of hate. Where does it come from and how you and I can combat it and how we can uh, hopefully achieve a, a more loving world and a more tolerant world for all of us. So join me tonight, 7 o'clock, Escape from Cairo. That information is on our website, intownjewishacademy.org. Great to see you all. Wishing you a great day and a Shavua Tov. Have a great week. We'll see you guys. Take Thank care, you everybody. Very much. Beautiful class. Pleasure. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Take care, everybody. Thank you, Rabbi. Sure. Take care.